All right, we've been looking at a history of uh, theological ethics in a very uh, uh, general and easy um, fashion so that I can show you that the issue throughout the history of theological ethics has been the supremacy of God's word. In the ancient church, the issue was the city versus Christ, the polis versus Christ. As Augustine said, the city of man versus the city of God. In medieval ethics, the nature-grace dichotomy led to the view that there were two sources of ethical authority, uh, the natural man and his reason and uh, nature, and then special revelation and God's grace. The Protestant Reformation challenged that dichotomy, wishing to come back to the original idea that Christ alone is the source of ethics. Not Christ and the city, but Christ over the city, Christ over nature, and so that all of life is subject to the word of God. Bishop Butler, I suggested, introduced Arminian retrogression into the reformational thrust when he said that man's conscience was also an adequate guide to an extent in matters of morality. But now what happened? We said Bishop Butler had also an Arminian apologetic in which he argued from the analogy of nature to grace. He said that Christianity is a republication of nature. But now how does one know nature? How does one know what happens in the world around him? Through his senses, right? Sight, hearing, taste, touch, David Hume, a philosopher, an unbelieving philosopher, undermined the foundations of sensation as a source of knowledge, what is called empiricism. He undermined the idea that one could trust his senses to give him knowledge, that one could just do a study of individual uh, situations in the world, this individual situation, that individual situation, this particular, that particular, and then draw some generalized conclusion. Hume said there's no connection between the particulars, no connection between any particular situation and another, and therefore there are no general principles. There are no absolute and universal rules. And so Hume, in undermining sensation as an approach to knowledge, and undermining uh, the ability of men to generalize from particulars, Hume thereby undermined Bishop Butler's ethic and theology. Well, if Hume did a destructive job on Christian ethics, as it's understood in the, uh, the sense that, but, uh, that Butler gives it to us, how much more did Kant destroy this autonomous ethic of Butler as well? Of course, Kant destroyed the autonomous ethic of Butler, the idea that you could appeal to conscience and uh, then supplement that with the Bible. Kant destroyed that idea by giving an even more autonomous ethic in its place, to be sure. But now what did Kant suggest? Kant suggested that there are really two realms of reality. Two realms of reality. I'm going to use the technical terms, don't anybody faint. Okay? The noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. What's the phenomenal realm? Okay, as we all sit around the table drinking Cokes, is that the phenomenal realm? That's right, that's the realm of appearance. It appears this way. It's the realm of common experience. It's the realm of nature and sensation and mechanical relationships between things. It's the realm of geometry and physics. Kant said there was also a noumenal realm, however. The noumenal realm was the realm of freedom, the realm of the spirit, the realm of personality, and the realm of ethics or morality. And so you see, Kant is positing two realms, the mechanical realm, the realm of mechanical fact, what happens in the world of nature and physics. And then above that, there's a realm of freedom in a moral sense. Where does God exist if there is a God at all? In the realm of mechanical fact and mathematics and geometry? No. He must exist in the noumenal realm. 
And since there's an absolute dichotomy between these two realms, Kant said there can be no knowledge of God in the phenomenal sense. Now, when you read words on a page, is that a phenomenal experience or a noumenal experience? That is, the retina has impinging upon it, reflections from the page, certain mechanical relationships between words. What is that? That's a sensation. That's a physical experience. That's a phenomenal experience. That's the realm of appearance. That's the way things appear. But God being a noumenal object, transcending this realm of uh, mechanical fact, <clears throat> cannot communicate clearly in the realm in which we normally live and move and have a scientific understanding of things. There can be no cognitive knowledge of God, therefore. God cannot reveal himself in human words. How does one then know God, according to Kant? By his ethical sense. We all posit that there's a God because in the realm of ethics and moral sensibility and freedom, it just seems that we need that idea of a God to validate the idea of doing what is right and wrong and being punished if we don't. Okay? The Reformation said, no autonomy. Butler said, no, no, a little bit of autonomy at the beginning's okay. Hume said, I can undermine even that little bit of autonomy. And Kant said, it must all become autonomy because God cannot reveal himself in the Bible. The only God we know is a God of our ethical sense, not a God that can reveal himself in words, in a book. Well, now, if you believe that, if you believe the only theology you can have is a theology tied to your moral sense, do you see how easily Protestant theology reduced to morality? Theology became the study of ethics for those who followed <coughs> Kant. Who followed Kant in reducing theology to ethics? Liberal theology in the 19th century. In the last century, liberal theology and modernism following men like Schleiermacher and Ritschel agreed that theology must have a predominant moralistic focus. Well, now tonight I said that we believe that all theology must be ethical as well. So do we rejoice in modernism and liberalism and the great effects that Kant had upon the history of theological ethics? Obviously not. Either did neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy brought theology back in on a grand scale. Neo-orthodoxy can be understood as a repudiation of the exclusively ethical focus of liberalism. The liberals wanted to talk about the brotherhood of man, the fatherhood of God, and the principle of love as being the sum and substance of Christianity. Neo-orthodoxy said no. Karl Barth said no. We need a radical return to the Word of God. However, when Bart and Bruner returned to their theology of the Word of God, they didn't escape Kant completely, because they didn't believe that God's Word could be identified with the words of a book. God may encounter us by means of the word of a, words in a book. In reading the Bible, we may have an encounter with God, but those words can't be identified with God's words. And so it's not surprising, it seems to me, that Barton Bruner did not have anything but general and vague things to say in ethics. If you read Bruner's The Divine Imperative, here's an entire textbook on theological ethics. And Bruner does not come down hard 
and absolute and consistent and clearly on any particular issue. Why not? Because if you don't have the clear word of God, you don't have any guidance. You may talk about God's word. You may talk about encountering God. But when push comes to shove, nobody knows for sure. Yeah. I've had an ongoing dispute with uh, several people in regards to the whole issue of the AACS out of Toronto and neo-orthodoxy. Okay. I maintain that their view of the word of God is neo-orthodox, and I have been basically told that that's not right. And I was wondering if you could <coughs> clarify that a little bit. The AACS, for those of you who are not familiar with this dispute, is the Association for Advanced Christian Studies in Toronto, Canada a group that started, what, about 15 years ago, I would imagine now, uh, with the idea of bringing a reformational word of God to bear on all areas of life. Commendable goal. It's a goal which um, I espouse. However, they have a certain doctrine um, of the word of God that says we must distinguish between the word of God as power, what the word of God does to us, and the Word of God as text, what the Word of God says to us. Now, because the neo Verdians, not a great thing to be, a neo Verdian. these neo Verdians in Toronto of the AACS um, hold with Doyavard, their um, mentor, that there are really 15 different modal aspects of reality, irreducible aspects of life and uh, so forth. You're all with me so far? Okay. One of those aspects, one aspect is the numerical aspect, another is the biological aspect, a further is the physical aspect, and uh, there's the social aspect and the juridical aspect, and, um, well, I can't remember them all, but there's about 15 of them. Uh, well, some people say 13 and some say 14, but anyway, it's... Somewhere in that range, 13, 14, 15 modal spheres. Irreducible aspects of life. One of those aspects, in fact, the, the crowning aspect of life is the aspect of faith. Okay, our relationship to God. Now, the Bible, when it speaks to us, the Bible is the word of God as text in the area of faith. Okay, it gives us our theology. But the Bible is the word of God in the other aspects of life as power. That is, the Bible grips us and controls us as we enter into these other aspects of life, math and science, and, excuse me, society. Now, Jim has suggested that that is implicitly parallel, if nothing else, to the neo-Orthodox view of the Word of God. And I think he's right. It's a criticism that I've been making for a number of years. It's not a criticism which the AACS will accept, as you might expect. It's not one which they like but it's one which I think is inescapable. They believe that the Word of God is understood in two different senses. One, in a noumenal sense, if you will, if I can be prejudicial, use Kantian language, where God's Word grips me in my inner sense and uh, controls me as I go into these other areas. And then the Word of God in the phenomenal sense, in the faith aspect, gives us our theology. Well, I don't want to get onto the AACS any further. Let me come back to neo-orthodoxy. Bart and Bruner want to return to the Word of God, but they don't want to return to the Word of God as being equated with the Bible. The Bible is but a springboard to encounter the Word of God. You all follow that? 
Okay, if you read the Bible, something may happen to you. And if this very special something happens, that is an encounter with the Word of God. But you can't reduce to language what the Word of God is. The Bible must not be equated with the Word of God. It is but a pointer to the Word of God. And what, and what I'm saying is it's no surprise then that Bart and Bruner tended to be very general and vague when it came to ethics. After all, thus saith the Lord in the Bible was replaced by, it seems to me, and there's an awful lot of me's running around that things can seem to. And so it seems one way to one man and another way to another. And it's no surprise that they couldn't be very specific. Okay? As a matter of fact, some New Orthodox theologians wanted to emphasize that revelation is visual rather than auditory. You might want to read um, uh, John Bailey's The Concept of Revelation in Modern Theology. All right. By the way, because neo-orthodoxy didn't tend um, to give specific and clear guidance in ethics, with one exception, Bart did become very pointed and specific when he wanted to condemn the Nazis. Okay, Bart was very clear that God was against Hitler. And now that's inconsistent, it seems to me, with uh, what he said elsewhere. But apart from that uh, exception to the rule, they were very vague in general. And when somebody like Niebuhr started to get involved in Christian casuistry, casuistry is trying to work out the details of some ethical issue in a very specific and detailed way. When Niebuhr did that, there, was, um, there were subtle hints throughout the neo-Orthodox world that he was, in fact, liberal. A return to moralism, you see, rather than the theology of the word. If you want me to put it to you simply, the ethical focus was in in the 19th century, and the ethical focus is out in the 20th century. Now we come to the 1960s. What happens? Ethics comes thundering back in. What were the theologians of the 1960s talking about? The war in Vietnam, abortion, women's liberation, racial relations, genetic engineering, and on and on and on. Poverty. You see, the theologians had nothing to say of a more, in a more standard theological vein. After all, God didn't have a clear revelation of himself anywhere, and consequently it was just whatever it seems to you. I realize that's not quite fair to them completely, but it, it, it simplifies it, I think, well enough. In the 1960s, since the theologians had nothing further to say about God and about Christ as the Son of God and the Holy Spirit and salvation and eternal life, they started talking about ethics again. And what develops in the 1960s but situation ethics? Situation ethics stimulates many publications and articles, so issues like civil rights and sexual ethics, poverty, medicine, and so forth started gaining great attention. And in fact, in the 1960s, I dare say there was a general consensus reached in favor of situationalism and ethics. So Butler opened the door, Hume destroyed his foundations, Kant replaced the knowledge of God found in the Bible with a subjective knowledge of God in an ethical sense. Liberal theology became moralistic in its focus. Neo-Orthodoxy reacted against liberalism and modernism. 
but was not able to give any concrete message from God in ethics. In 1960, concrete issues were taken up, but interestingly, without any clear word from God, so that concrete questions of ethics were settled on a situational basis. Well, now we have to come up to the 70s, 1970. The problem seems to be for the theologians, the modernist theologians of our day, how they are to implement their consensus of liberal opinion from the 1960s. Ethical principles have not, during this decade, been debated or determined very extensively in theological literature. Rather, the discussion has come to focus on applying those principles to specific situations. And I think a beautiful illustration is that's the theology of revolution. You see, in the 60s, we talked about situation ethics. In the 70s, we talked about how to get it on. That's the theology of revolution. It is assumed that we know what to do now, and the only real question is that of strategy and motivation. And thus, people are generally abandoning moral reasoning in the literature in favor of a discussion, uh, and abandoning discussion in favor of action and getting people out working. What happened to Orthodox theology over the last two centuries? Orthodox theology began more and more to start talking to itself. It became more and more an in-house discussion. In light of that, and I realize these are very broad strokes, but in light of that, that is the retreat of Orthodox theology um, from of the pressing issues of society in the day, retreat from a polemical attack upon modernist ethical uh, theology and so forth. And in light of that, it's no surprise that the in-house discussion of ethics produced in Orthodox theology the aberration of fundamentalism in the early 20th century. Now, I don't mean fundamentalism is an aberration theologically. I obviously believe in the virgin birth and the coming again of Christ the fundamentals. But fundamentalism had tied to it also an ethic that said, we don't dance, and uh, we, don't, we don't drink, and we don't chew, and we don't go with the girls that do, basically. All right? Uh, moralistic rules, which had nothing to do with the Bible, but had to do with trying to make ourselves distinctive as Christians from the, quote, world. We don't look like the world. We don't behave like the world. Not that God's word condemns smoking or drinking or dancing or card playing or going to movies or so forth, although all of those things can be sinful uh, when abused. But not that the word of God requires that we condemn these things, but the church did. Well, Orthodox theology in the last two centuries, or last 150 years in particular, has come under two kinds of attacks which really kind of war against each other, are, are working against each other. On the one hand, Orthodox theology, especially Reformed theology, has been accused of, uh, uh, has been scorned for having too many principles. You see, Reformed theology, trying to follow the law of God, shackles people with a legalistic concern for all the details of the Bible. And that's scorned and ridiculed. You're putting people in bondage. We're not under law, we're under grace. All right? We don't need details, we have general principles. That's enough. We don't need explicit guidance in the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. 
Orthodox theology, Reformed theology, you're legalistic. You have too many details for us to follow. And yet, ironically, in the last two centuries, Orthodox theology has also been criticized for not having enough principles. How's that? Well, Orthodox theology has been criticized by people for being irrelevant to our present situation as trying to gain a modern morality from an old-fashioned book. You see... It isn't good enough that God gave us so many principles way back when. If you try to answer modern questions with that old-fashioned book, you haven't got enough principles to follow. They aren't relevant enough. They aren't updated. And so uh, you see the Reformed Church is being ridiculed on the one hand for having too many principles, and on the other hand is being ridiculed for not having enough principles. Not having enough principles meaning not having principles that, are, uh, that bring us up to the modern day. Well, I'm glad to say that um, while the modernist theologians have been abandoning ethics, um, while they were abandoning ethics, orthodoxy was producing a good number of ethical works. Many books were being written over the last few decades, a number of study guides. In our day and age, a good number of articles and tapes are now available. And the questions of our time uh, are no longer being given pat answers by those in the Reformed Church. They're, they're seeking specific answers uh, from the Bible about war and about race and about abortion and about poverty and this sort of thing. Traditional approaches are being re-scrutinized, and all that's very good. What's our task right now? But what has been the one lesson that we should have learned throughout the history, this short history that I've given you of theological ethics, the one lesson that we ought to have learned through all of it, the back and forth, is the supremacy of God's Word. The supremacy of God's Word in the ancient church, Christ over the state. The supremacy of God's Word in the Reformation, not nature and grace, but God's Word over all areas of life. The supremacy of God's Word was forgotten by Butler, and for that reason we went into the Babylonian captivity of Kantian philosophy and theology, where God couldn't reveal anything specific to us. And of course, liberalism abandoned the Word of God. Neo-Orthodoxy talked about the Word of God, but never went back to the Bible specifically. The Orthodox churches, as they now begin to look at ethics again, and to try to answer some of the pressing questions of our day, must be mandated, encouraged, and shown how to use the Word of God to answer these questions. Not the Word of God and something else. Not the Word of God is modified by something outside of it, but how to use the Word of God completely and solely to answer these questions of right and wrong. Or if you will, we want to return to the ancient church, we want to return to the reformational church, as they said, sola scriptura and tota scriptura, all of scripture and only scripture is necessary to completely equip us for every good work. And so the task, as I see it, this is one man's opinion, if you will, but the task as I see it is to learn how to apply God's unchanging word to our changing world. All right, do you have any questions on this segment of our lesson tonight? Is there any problem with logic or a lack of it in uh, theological ethics? Well, I, I think there's a problem with a lack of logic, yes. Um, Basically, 
a man who will not abide by the law of contradiction, a man who contradicts himself is not abiding by the ninth commandment about telling the truth, is he? We're told that God doesn't waver, that God doesn't change, God doesn't contradict himself, and God doesn't lie. We're to emulate God, we're to think his thoughts after him, and if God doesn't think in a contradictory and lying fashion, uh, we mustn't either. And so it's, it's my opinion, uh, speaking as an apologist for a minute, that logic is absolutely essential uh, to Christian thinking and theology. I also believe that logic is guided by the Word of God and not by external standards. I should say, because Scripture, therefore logic. Yes, the Scripture is foundational and logic is required because of it, just as sense experience is required because of it. Okay, So I wouldn't say there are two separate sources of, uh, of authority in the realm of knowledge. I should say it's the one source of God's Word. But God's Word requires that we be consistent. Yeah, I think... <laughs> no, I just didn't want to be hasty in answering that. I think it is necessary to Arminianism. Uh, I think most... I won't say most. I should say that I know Arminians who are better than their theology. All right? And I praise the Lord for that. Um, and uh, I wish as a Calvinist that myself and other Calvinists were as good as their theology. Um, so, I mean, it's no aspersion on them personally. But I think, in fact, Arminianism, taken as, uh, according to its principles, does require an autonomous outlook. Because the Arminian does not believe in the utter depravity of man. And therefore he believes in the ability of human reason, to some extent, um, to come to a proper knowledge of God believes that man has, in some sense, the ability to obey God's word. You see, lacking the doctrine of total depravity, I think Arminianism does, in fact, give encouragement to and necessitate the autonomous use of man's facilities. That's right. Logic, properly understood, does not tell us anything about the world. Logic tells us simply how we must think when we have content in our propositions or our thinking about the world. It tells us how to relate propositions to one another, how to draw proper conclusions from our premises. <coughs> Any other questions about the history of theological ethics? Do you all see the necessity for God's word to be held supreme in ethics then? I mean, if, if history teaches us any lessons, it teaches us at least that one, I think. In the uh, history course that the juniors had this past quarter, Professor Langley um, sought to stress and demonstrate how the theologians during the medieval church period, because of the um, the nature-grace uh, dichotomy, was unable to stop the secularizing influence of the world against the church and maintain that it was only a consistent reform interpretation of scripture that would be able to maintain that. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Sure. <clears throat> to put it in Francis Schaeffer's vivid words, whenever you have a nature-grace dichotomy, nature ends up swallowing grace and engulfs it. And once you give the natural man an inch, he takes a mile. Uh, if, he, if he thinks he has an ability to reason properly in one area, to know God's will in one area, uh, to to do uh, to behave uh, in his own strength in one area, then he will continue to expand that imperious principle of autonomy until it encompasses everything. 
And so Arminianism and, uh, and inconsistent Reformed theology is unable to stop the course of secularism. I really think in the long run that the only way secularism will be stopped in our own day is when we return totally to the Word of God and to the Law of God as being the only source and the supreme source, uh, therefore, of, um, of theology and morality. Well, now that's the history of theological ethics. I want to do a short history now of philosophical ethics. And as we do this, I want to point out what the, um, what the key questions are in philosophical ethics. In a sense, there are two main questions and three main answers. I know I'm simple. The two main questions that arise throughout the history of philosophical ethics are these. One, what is the meaning of crucial moral terms? What does it mean to say X is right? Well, some people say X is right means that X contributes to the general public welfare. What school of thought says that? Anybody? Ted? No, not pragmatism. Utilitarianism. Right. Um, Pragmatism and utilitarianism are akin to each other, though, so don't worry about that answer. The meaning of crucial moral terms is one of the issues that is considered in philosophical ethics. And then secondly, how does one justify fundamental moral judgments? How are our basic principles of ethics justified? Okay, let's say that one of your basic principles is thou shalt not steal. How do you justify that? How do you know that you shouldn't steal? Okay, there are different schools of philosophical thought on how you know that, if you know that. Some would say you don't know that. Um, But how do you go about justifying the principles, the basic principles you use in ethics? Okay, everybody with me? Philosophical ethics has asked about the meaning and the justification of ethical propositions. The meaning of, of fundamental ethical terms, or key ethical terms, the justification of basic ethical premises. Okay, I say there are two questions and three main answers. Okay, now the three answers are, I'm going to give this very broadly. There are some who say that our fundamental perspective on ethics should be governed by rules and duty. Rules and duty. The most important thing in determining the meaning of a moral term or the justification of a moral premise is one's duty or a consideration of rules. Another way of putting that is there is, in the history of philosophical ethics, a normative school of thought. Now, those of you who like to get some fancy words in your notes, also called the deontological school of thought. An example of a normative approach to ethics or a deontological approach to ethics would be that of Plato. Plato was a, uh, emphasized the normative approach to ethics. He thought there was an objective good that was totally apart from the fluctuations of human history and sensation and had nothing to do with human desire. The good, the right, what we ought to do was totally apart from the world in which we live. All right. On the other hand, there have been those who have taken an approach to ethics that emphasizes goals and consequences. This is sometimes called the teleological approach to ethics or the situational approach to ethics. The emphasis here is not so much on norms, but on consequences. You know what is good when you can weigh the consequences. 
Okay, so that if a lot of people will be benefited by doing X, then X is good. And if people won't be benefited, then X is not good. The emphasis here is not upon rules and duty, but rather upon goals, consequences. Now, another school of thought, actually it's a very broad school of thought, a lot of different philosophers fall into it, has emphasized uh, not duty or rules, not goals or consequences, but personal traits and motives. Personal traits and motives. What is important is the kind of man that is acting and the motive for his action. This is sometimes called the dispositional approach to ethics or also the existential approach to ethics. Now I'm going to give you some new vocabulary that you're going to be hearing throughout the course. Those who emphasize duty and rules or a normative approach can be said to lay their emphasis upon the standard of ethics. Those who emphasize goals and consequences can be said to lay their emphasis upon the goal of ethics. And those who emphasize personal traits and motives on the motive of ethics. And so, if you will, what we have here is the goal, motive, and standard of ethics. The goal, motive, and standard. Some people say we answer ethical questions by looking at the goal. Some say by looking at the motive. Some by looking at the standard. Alrighty? Two major questions in the history of philosophical ethics, three major answers, or types of answers. Those that would hold to a a normative view of ethics, where, where would they indicate that the rules come from? Different places. We're going to give some examples here, okay? Now, what I want to say is that a Christian response to this will say at least two things. And the two things can be illustrated by a square and a triangle. All right, see how easy this course is becoming? <coughs> Elementary geometry. Okay, a Christian response to this. First of all, the square. Now, this square is going to represent the Christian and the non-Christian approach to ethics with respect to two questions, absolutes and relevance. Every ethical system is going to have to have some notion of absolutes or is going to have some doctrine of absolutism. It's going to have some question of authority, if you will, to put it very simply. And yet every ethical system is going to have to have some relevance or is going to have is going some I'm not going to put this a feature of every ethical system is its relevance to particular problems. Okay? Now if the top line on this square stands for the absolute, the way that the system relates to absolutes, and the bottom line stands for the way a system relates to um, uh, the matter of relevance in particular issues. Then this left-hand side of the square represents the Christian position, and this right-hand side stands for the non-Christian. Everybody understand the diagram? All right, let's try to take it a step further. If this top line is the issue of absolutes in ethics, and this left line is the Christian approach, then what's this corner stand for? The Christian approach to absolutes in ethics. This corner down here, the Christian approach to relevance, this corner the non-Christian approach to absolutes, and this corner the non-Christian approach to relevance. Now, that's just a diagram. And why am I bothering to give you this square of opposition here? Because I want to show you that there is a basic and fundamental clash between all non-Christian system of ethics 
in all Christian systems of ethics, and that, secondly, non-Christian approaches, autonomous approaches to ethics, eventually destroy themselves because they cannot have absolutes and relevance simultaneously. What's the Christian doctrine of absolutism in ethics? The Christian doctrine with respect to absolutes, or if you will, the Christian view of authority in ethics is that God's law is unconditionally binding. God's law is unconditionally binding because he has sovereign authority over all men in all situations. God's law is unconditionally binding. That's what you want to put up here for this corner, the Christian view of absolutes and authority in ethics. Okay, what's the non-Christian view of absolutes and authority in ethics? The non-Christian view is that whatever moral law we have cannot be clearly revealed. There can be no clearly revealed moral law. Remember what I said about Kant, there can be no cognitive knowledge of God. Uh, the neo-Orthodox say you cannot identify the Bible with the Word of God. There can be no clear revelation of a moral law. Every non-Christian system is going to say that in one form or another. Now let's come down here to the bottom. What's the Christian view of relevance in ethics and the non-Christian view of relevance? The Christian says that God's law is specific and clear. That God's law is specific and clear, which is to say always relevant to our lives. It's specific and it's clear. The non-Christian, when he wants to gain relevance in his ethical system, will say that in one form or another, human value must be treated as final. Human value must be treated as final. All right, let me say this one more time. Okay, God's law is unconditionally binding. There's the Christian view of moral authority and absolutism. The Christian view of relevance is that God's law is specific and clear. All right. Now, the non-Christian says that there can be no clearly revealed moral law. And the non-Christian says about relevance that human values must be treated as final. Amidst all these embarrassing interruptions, did anybody notice that the opposite corners of the uh, square conflict with each other? That shows you how absolute the distinction is and the contrast and the opposition is between Christianity and non-Christianity in all matters. Non-Christian view of authority or absolutes in ethics is that there can be no clearly revealed law. And then the, the non-Christian view of relevance is that human values must be treated as final. Let me, let me illustrate this for a second. Okay, I, I hold a Christian view of ethics. I mean, that's, that's, my, that's my aim anyway. The, no, the non-Christian view of relevance is that human values must be treated as final. Let me, let me illustrate this for a second. Okay, I, I hold a Christian view of ethics. I mean, that's, that's, my, that's my aim anyway. Uh, I think the Word of God teaches me that God's law is unconditionally binding. Right? When God says, thou shalt not steal, you cannot contradict that. And it binds us for all times, all men, and all places. But God's word is very specific and clear. Not only is it fully authoritative, is it fully absolute, 
but God applies it to a very specific situation. He tells me what it means to steal and what it doesn't mean to steal. Tells me what restitution must be made if I do steal. That is, God is very detailed. He's very clear. He's very specific. He's very relevant. His standards are not vague principles. His standards are very clear and specific and pointed. On the other hand, the non-Christian, let's, let's take a system that has absolutes, all right? Plato, we said, was not Plato. Plato was an example of somebody who had absolutes in his ethical system. Now, Plato said that there is a form of the good that lies outside of human history and experience in a realm of the forms, all right? And so... You know, when we're down here having a party sometime, you'll have to remember that, that the realm of the forms has parties too. Duckness and goodness and threeness and triangularity. All the forms that you can think of live in another world and they have their own life and reality. Now, Plato thought, therefore, that goodness was absolute. There is a principle, a standard, a form, an idea of the good which is not altered by human desire, not altered by the fluctuation of human history, was unchanging, was absolute. But what was the problem with the good? Nobody knew it. You see, he, he achieved his absolute standard of ethics, but at the cost of emptying it of any specific content. Now, Aristotle comes along, who was one of the better students of Plato, and he said, that's inadequate. That doesn't give us any help. Now, Plato, who cares about some good in a realm way beyond human history and beyond human desire and beyond human knowledge? That doesn't do us any good in making decisions. What we need is some relevance right here and now. Okay? And so in his attempt to find relevance, Aristotle said that ethical questions will be decided on the basis of the goal of all human activity. When do you have a good knife? You have a good knife when you have a knife that does that which knives are supposed to do well. So when you have a sharp knife that cuts well, you have a good knife. You have a virtuous knife. When do you have a good man? When you have a man who does what men are supposed to do. What are, what are men supposed to do? Well, what's distinctive about man, according to Aristotle? What's that? Reason. That's right. Man is a reasoning biped. A featherless reasoning biped. <laughs> All right? Man is unlike every other animal and every other thing in that he pursues reason. And therefore, a human value gets treated as final. You see that? If I can find out what I'm supposed to be as a human being, a reasoning creature then all other ethical questions are gauged according to that goal, that I should be more reasonable. All well, sounds very good, sounds very relevant. We're right down here in the muck of history in our own lives. We know detailed questions and can get detailed answers, right? Well, Aristotle gave detailed answers by pointing out that reasonable men will follow the golden mean, right? They will not do things which are uh, erring on the side of excess, they will not do things which err on the side of leniency. Uh, they're moderate men. They follow the golden mean. 
They walk down the middle of the road, if you will. What's the problem with that? So why should I do that? So Aristotle, you say that I should be reasoning. I, I can think of a lot of things that are distinctive about human beings. It's not just reason. I mean to embarrass anybody, but I mean Aristotle totally overlooked the fact that human beings are the only animals that have sexual relations at any time. And so why shouldn't we have argued? Now, see, this is reductio ad absurdum of Aristotle's ethics. Why should we not have reasoned, therefore, that the ethical man is the one who's always having sex? Moreover, following the golden mean Aristotle, who are you to tell me that I should walk down the middle of the road and get hit by trucks going both ways? <laughs> Maybe I'd just like to take the chance, be a little risky about life, and stand on one side of the road and hope that, you know, nothing happens over there. You see, Aristotle got very specific. He had a human value that he absolutized, reason. He was very specific, had his golden mean, and could answer detailed questions of ethics, but he had no authority. He gave answers, but then people could say, so what? You couldn't say, so what, to Plato. Plato had an absolute standard. Everybody was bound by the form of the good. What you said to Plato is, what does it mean? Now, I'm suggesting, in very broad, generalized, simple terms again, that all non-Christian systems have this problem. They either have authority without content, or content without authority. Does the Christian have that problem? Maybe a little self-serving for a minute. I don't believe the theonomist has that problem. I don't believe a person who says that God's law and all the ins and outs of its intricate detail is binding on us has that problem. Because God's law is unconditionally binding, we have authority in absolutes. And because God comes right down into our lives and speaks specifically to the issues of our behavior and attitude and conduct, we have relevance too. Only the Christian. Only the reformational Christian, only the scriptural Christian who wants all inspired scripture to be his instruction so that he'll be perfectly equipped to every good work. Only that Christian has both absolutes and relevance and ethics. You see, the fact that God is the Lord makes it possible for him to come right into our situations and become involved and present to us. And God can come right into our specific situation, speak directly to the details of our life without compromising his divine attributes and his clear revelation. See, God doesn't lose any absolutism. God doesn't lose any authority when he speaks directly to an issue. In the non-Christian view, God does not come into our historical situation in a way which holds us responsible to obey him no matter what. God is so distant, if there is a God at all, in the non-Christian system. God is so beyond comprehension and so beyond relevance that there is no clear revelation available in history of God or his will. And if there is no clear revelation of God and his will in history, then man must become the final authority. You see, autonomy, I believe, is logically necessary once you give up theonomy. I'm not here talking about the title of my book. I'm talking about the general view that says all of God's word is our ethical authority in its absolute authority and relevance, every detail. You give that up, and autonomy is necessary because man will become the final authority filling in the gaps.
you might want to notice how the non-Christian system tears itself apart. All non-Christian systems say nobody can know for sure. There are no clear, absolute values that are inflexible to which all of us are bound. Nobody knows for sure, but I know that this is right or wrong. Some human value becomes absolute. Nobody knows for sure what's right and wrong, but I know it's all right to have an abortion. Nobody knows for sure what is right or wrong, but I know the war in Vietnam is immoral. Okay, so you see how there's this tearing apart, this inconsistency in that system, this tension. There are no clear standards, and yet a human standard must be treated as final. In the non-Christian system, the more authoritative you get in ethics, the less relevance you have, and the more relevance you give, the less authoritative you become. And that, you see, is the curse of autonomy. The curse of men trying to play God. But they can't. All right, now I want to give you another diagram. Let me hurry on here. We're going to move from a square to a triangle. It's really going to get complicated now. Remember I said in the history of philosophical ethics, there are three basic perspectives, um, three basic schools of thought. This is a rough and ready category scheme, but it will serve our purposes. Some emphasize the standard of ethics, rules and duty. Some emphasize the goal of ethics, the consequences of our actions. Some emphasize the motive of our actions, or if you will, the kind of person who is behaving in such and such a way. Okay, so we're going to diagram this as a triangle. And what I'm going to say is that the Christian answer to this is that... There are three necessary and sufficient conditions for good works in the Bible. There are three necessary and sufficient conditions of good works in the Bible. One must have the right goal. One must operate out of the right motive. And one must live under the right standard. What I'm saying is, those of you who are probably on to this, is that non-Christian philosophy has a tendency to absolutize and, um, and make an idol out of one of the necessary conditions for morality in the Bible, one of the necessary and sufficient conditions of good works. Let me illustrate this. Can a man be said to have done a good work if what he does transgresses the law of God? Yes, was that a transgression of the word of God or obedience to the word of God? What Did Abraham devise it in his own mind to kill his son, or did God tell him to do it? Can any man be said to have done a good work if he violates the word of God, transgresses the commandment of God? No. But now, what if a man does what God says he is supposed to do, but from an evil motive? What if a man gives alms to the poor so that people will praise him, so that he'll have the acclaim of his society. Is that a good man, and is that a good work? No, it's done from the wrong motive. And therefore, here's a person who has the right standard, but the wrong motive. But now, what if a man has the right motive? He does it out of love, and he does what the law of God says. He supports the poor, but he doesn't do it for the glory of God. He doesn't do it to achieve the kingdom of God. 
to pursue the kingdom of God and to promote God's glory in the world. Is that a good work? No, because the man had the wrong aims. And so, for a Christian, which is most important? The motive from which you do something, the goal for which you do it, or the standard that governs your doing it? What is the Christian approach to ethics? Remember I said all non-Christian systems tend to fall into one of these three schools of thought, deontological, teleological, or existential. They emphasize either the duties that we have or the consequences of our actions or the kind of people we are in behaving as we do. Which of those is the Christian approach? Right. All three of them together. But now let me add something to this. I said that these three are necessary and sufficient conditions for good works. Now by saying that all three are necessary, I'm saying that you can't do what the law says, but do it from the wrong motive or for, the, for an improper goal. Each one is necessary. You can't avoid any of them. But I also said each one is sufficient. I said each one stands by itself. Each one is sufficient to show us what our good works should be. Now, how can that be? Yes, that's right. You see, when you, when you have a broader view of God's standards, not just an externalistic view of God's law, it turns out that God himself commands us to love our neighbor. God's word commands us to pursue his glory. What does Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Is that an imperative? Is that an ethical standard to live by? Yeah. It's a standard that states the goal of all of our actions, the priority of God's kingdom. When Jesus says, love God and your neighbor as yourself, he's stating the motive for our actions, but he's stating it in the form of a standard, an imperative, a law. And so if one pays attention to the standard of ethics, he'll be forced to consider the goal of his behavior and the motive of his behavior. Does that hold true for the other two angles of the triangle also? This one is sufficient, but is the motive sufficient? If we, is a consideration of love sufficient for Christian ethics? Ah, uh, you're all hesitant. Some of you are saying no. Don? Ah, so that if we start with the motive, we'll be driven to the standard, right? Okay. If we start with the motive for ethics, will we be driven to the goal for ethics? Yes, how so? The goal would be to glorify God. Yes, but how is the command to love God lead us to the goal of glorifying God? Well, that's true. Greg is saying by indirection we can get there. Since the motive forces us to the standard, and we already know the standard forces us to the goal, then we know that the motive through the standard gets us to the goal. That's true. But does it also do so directly? Well, yes, it does. Because if we are to love our neighbor, then we must understand what consequences will follow from our actions. Okay, let's say, I love my neighbor, and that's why I tripped him. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, that expression of love has the wrong goal. It is the goal of hurting him rather than advancing his interest in the world. Consequently, love forces us to have the right goals as well. Now, how about if we start with the goal? To seek God's glory in his kingdom in all things. Well, 
is God glorified if we don't do things out of devotion and love toward him? No. So the goal forces us to the right motive. And is God glorified? Is the king's kingdom advanced if we disobey the dictates of the king? No. So the goal forces us back to the standard. Now I realize that's all very quick, and maybe you don't follow it exactly, but the next three weeks are going to be given over to three hours on each one of these items. And so we're going to go over it again many times. My point here is that in the history of philosophical ethics, the Christian answer is not to follow uh, the normative approach or the consequential approach or the personalistic approach to the exclusion of the others. The Christian answer is that each one of these is a necessary and sufficient condition of good works. You know, this is what the Bible teaches us also if we'll look at the Old Testament in the covenant that God makes with his redeemed people. <coughs> Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus, the 20th. Well, no, I'll tell you what. Let's, um, yeah, let's look at Exodus 20. We could also look at Deuteronomy. I, I was tempted to do that, but let's look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20 begins by saying, And God spake all these words, saying, I am Jehovah thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then follows nine other very detailed commandments. Now this is interesting. When God establishes his treaty with his people, when he comes as the Lord and speaks to his servants, as he comes being the king, wishing to direct his vassals, he begins by rehearsing the course of history. You see, he starts looking at the goal of things. He starts looking at the facts. He starts showing us how things have progressed. He says, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he says that what we must do above all is to love him, having no other gods in his presence. There's the command for love and exclusive loyalty to him, and then follows detailed stipulations that must be obeyed, okay? The goal, I've brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You are to love me above all, no other gods to be in my presence, and you're to follow these standards, these stipulations. You see, if we look at the Bible, we can see that these these three aspects are all to be found there. Now, the book of Deuteronomy shows it even, uh, if anything, in a, in a clearer fashion because it's a, a more lengthy laying out of all of this. How God first rehearses the course of history and his goals for his people, how he rehearses, how he commands love and exclusive loyalty, the proper motive for their behavior, and then finally gives detailed stipulations that he expects them to obey. Okay, we've already said this already, but let me give you a um, preview of the next uh, three weeks. Uh, when we study the goal of ethics, we'll be studying how we are to do all things to God's glory. Remember how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatsoever you do, whether it be eating or drinking, do all to the glory of God. The motive for ethics is love and faith. Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Jesus says, and this is the great commandment of all, that you love 
the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And, of course, the standard of ethics, as uh, this will be no surprise to you, is our, the standard is the commandments of God. Now, these three angles of the triangle are three different ways of looking at the ethical enterprise, three different perspectives on ethics, and each one is necessary, each one is sufficient. One last point on the triangle. If each one is necessary and sufficient, then when all is said and done, they're equal to each other, aren't they? They're equivalent. One cannot take a motivational approach to ethics and leave out the norms of ethics and the goal of ethics. Also, one cannot take a um, teleological or goal-oriented approach to ethics and leave out the other two standards, other two perspectives. These three perspectives all end up saying the same thing. And this is what we would expect, since God does not give us three competing systems of ethics in the Bible. God is consistent with himself. And therefore, we can approach it from different angles. But the conclusion must always be the same. That is, there's a harmony in God's revelation, whether it be in terms of our motives, our goals, or our standards. Do you have any questions at this point? Gary? Yeah, let's say I, uh, I look at God's command to, to feed the poor. My motive is, okay, I see that the poor are in need. I'm obeying God's commandments, um, but my goal would be that it would bring, bring glory to God. What if the poor don't know standard, the motive, and that what I am doing should bring glory to God? They have no idea that that money or that food has come out of an emphasis to obey God's commandments and therefore to bring glory to Him. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary, there's a difference between being right and being known as right. And what God requires is not that we let people know that we're right, but that we do the right. Okay. Now, Jesus says to give it in like, my name. Um, if I okay. give to, say, uh, care, okay. and then there's... When, when the sacks of grain are open, there is you know, care written on it, rather, that this comes in the name of, of, of Jesus Christ. Not necessarily that I gave the money, mm -hmm. but that it comes because uh, uh, there are those who believe that whatever is given uh, must be acknowledged that it comes from, from God. What you're adding to our elementary illustration is that there are further standards uh, that go beyond what I was talking about in my illustration. Standards uh, you're suggesting such that when we give charity, it must be in the name of the Lord. Okay, now if that, and I tend to think it is, a standard taught in the Bible, then that means that when we give our alms to the poor, it must be given explicitly as Christian charity. All right? So that if a person gives through care and violates thereby the standard, to give it in Jesus' name, if that be a standard, uh, he is not living according to the three angles of the triangle, is he? He may have the proper motive and goal, but he hasn't lived by all the standards. A better way of putting that is, it would appear that he has the proper motive and goal, but since he doesn't live by all the standards, he's defective in those other two areas as well. Okay. Uh, 
Let's proceed in answering that question on the assumption that the right thing to do there is to tell a lie. Now, maybe not everybody in this room will accept that. There are plenty of people who don't accept it outside this room, I know that. It's a controversial question. My own conviction is that one must lie and very creatively and boldly under those circumstances. <laughs> no, I mean, I take that very seriously. I believe that, it's com that one is guilty of complexity and murder if one does not protect the innocent. And if you read the Westminster um, Larger Catechism, you'll notice that um, one can violate the Ninth Commandment according to the Catechism by saying nothing at all and by speaking the truth. Now you have to stop and think about that. One can violate the Ninth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, by not saying anything at all sometimes and by speaking the truth sometimes. I'd like to point that out. Question 145. What are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbor, as well as our own, etc., etc., and you go down, and then it falls into a number of categories. The outlining of the catechism is a fascinating study in itself. But as you go through these various categories, you'll notice that included in the sins that are forbidden by this commandment are these. Undue silence in a just cause and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful or equivocal expressions to the prejudice of truth or justice. And, of course, speaking untruth, lying, backbiting, slandering, and all the rest. What I'm suggesting is it's not an easy thing to go from the Ninth Commandment and, and, and um, to the conclusion that one must tell the truth at all times. One must speak the truth properly. One must, keep, uh, must not keep his silence at certain times. And it's my own conviction, as in the case of Rahab, that God would require you to lie in certain cases. Now, to answer your question, you see, I've got to go on that assumption. I'm not going to defend that now. The last night of our course, we'll get down to commands 8, 9, and 10 of the Decalogue, and we'll be looking at de in detail and specifically at this uh, uh, torturous issue of whether one can ever lie. But now, if it appears that out of love for the innocent Jews in the basement, and in order to achieve the consequences God wants, the protection of the innocent uh, his glory and the advancement of his kingdom in this world. If it appears that that motive and that goal require lying, one must never think that these angles of the triangle can outweigh this one, or any other way, too. The only way that I may argue that love for these innocent Jews and a respect for the glory of God and his kingdom legitimates lying to the Gestapo, the only way I may argue that is if, in fact, the standard of God's law allows for that exception. Now, as it turns out, I believe it does. Rahab is a clear example of God condoning a lie to protect innocent human life. Now, maybe I'm wrong in that. If I'm wrong in that, then one must never use these angles of the triangle to engulf this one, because we said these are all necessary and sufficient. If anybody violates the standards of God, necessarily he's not doing a good work. And so the whole issue becomes, 
what do God's standards require under circumstances of a threat to innocent human life? Okay? And we'll have to answer that question later. But I'm glad you asked it because it, it allows me to illustrate, in terms of my own conviction and then the opposite of my conviction, how these corners are all required and must not be pitted against each other. David, I don't know of any exceptions that would allow for that. The fellow asked, well, you're not a Christian, are you? Uh, I mean, if you said, yes, I am, you might as well be saying that they are. I don't follow uh, that completely, but if the Gestapo is looking to kill Christians, then I won't likely be sticking around in the house anyway, will I? But if I get caught and they say, are you a Christian, it's my understanding of the scriptures. And we'll have to study this together when we get down to it. I don't believe the Bible ever allows us to lie about our religious affiliation. Interestingly, though, I can think of an, of, of an example that would give you food for thought. I remember when Naaman goes back to the uh, Syrian master, his Syrian master, um, Elisha explicitly tells him that when his master goes into the pagan temple and, um, and leans upon his, um, his cane or bows down, that uh, Naaman is to bow his knee as well. And just to show you that we've all got to be studying ethics, I don't for the life of me understand that. I mean, I've, I've studied that for a long time, for a number of years, and I still haven't got anything that satisfies me as an explanation of that situation. But anyway, we've got to study the Word of God as to what God's standards are. We've got to do things out of the right motives and for the proper goals. And uh, we mustn't pit these against each other. They all require each other. We only have a few minutes here, and I haven't gotten through all of tonight's lesson. That's not unusual. But I also have a policy that I'm not going to fall behind. I mean, I set out what the topic is for every night, and I'll give you three hours' worth of material on it, then we'll move on so that we finally do cover everything at least once over lightly. Um, in my remaining time, what I need to do is to talk a little bit about normative ethics. If we had time, what I was going to do is to illustrate the problems in non-Christian ethics uh, from Plato and Aristotle. Plato takes the standard or normative approach to ethics. Aristotle takes the goal approach to ethics. Then I was going to illustrate it from Kant and John Stuart Mill. Kant takes the, um, uh, the deontological or standard normative approach, and Mill took the consequential or goal approach to ethics. And then finally I was going to look at uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who takes the existential or motive approach. Sartre says a good act is one done out of radical freedom that is out of the right motivation. Um, and there are problems in all three of those systems. Um, we looked, first of all, tonight at why we study ethics. We looked at how ethics and theology or religion cannot be separated. Um, then I started talking about some of the distinctives of ethics so we'd know the lay of the land. And I gave you a Christian definition of ethics so you'd know what we're doing in this course. Then we studied the history of theological ethics. What is the key question in the history of theological ethics? Key issue? The supremacy of God's word over all of life. And now we've looked at the history of philosophical ethics. And there we saw there are two main questions, the meaning of key moral terms and the justification of fundamental moral principles. Three approaches to that. One emphasizes norms, one emphasizes goals, one emphasizes motives. And the Christian answer to that is that all are necessary and sufficient for Christian ethics. This study of philosophical ethics is sometimes called meta-ethics. Okay, the study of those principles lying behind normative ethics. Well, what's normative ethics then? Normative ethics is actually getting into the ball game, if you will. You know, getting up there and facing some questions and some issues and trying to come up with answers. 
normative ethics tries to discover and analyze our duties and rules and obligations, gives us a theory of human rights, a theory of justice. Uh, normative ethics lays out what are moral virtues for persons. It gives us a theory of moral responsibility, and it discusses how to produce, encourage, and maintain morality through training, education, exhortation, sanctions, renovation, moral growth, and uh, motivation. Basically, most of you, when you were thinking about ethics and came to this course tonight, were undoubtedly thinking of normative ethics. That is, what are the issues and how do we answer them? What is right? What is wrong? What's our obligation? What's our rights? What's our just, what, ju what does justice de demand? What are moral virtues? What's moral responsibility? How do we encourage and produce this sort of thing in ourselves and others? That's normative ethics. And um, I need to encourage some of you. All right? Tonight has been the hardest night of the entire course. All right? It hasn't been terribly difficult in one sense because I've just been summarizing in very broad strokes, uh, generalizing some things. It could be, uh, you know, much worse. But the point is that tonight was as bad as it's going to get and probably as dry as it's going to get because this is the introduction, this is the philosophical part. Now we shove all that aside, and next week we start taking up normative ethics and the issues. Next week we'll start looking at the goal of ethics. How do, we, how do facts enter into moral reasoning? How do we take what is true about the past, the present, and the future and use that to make moral decisions? The week after that we'll be talking about the process of personal sanctification. How do we have the right motives? How do we become the kind of people that God wants us to be? The week after that, we'll be taking up the vexing question of uh, what is the standard of Christian ethics and whether the law of God is binding upon us. The week after that, we'll be studying questions of adiaphora. How does the law relate to freedom and situationalism? How does it relate to love? Uh, so uh, questions having to do with that. And then the remaining weeks of the course, the last four weeks, well, there's, an, there's another week then on social ethics, question of the state and penology. And then we'll take the last four weeks of the course just going through a whole series of issues of ethics. Um, starting with the first commandment and running through the tenth commandment eventually and all the various social and personal problems that tend to arise in these days over them. Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, perhaps the, the most famous philosopher of the last uh, 20 uh, to 30 years, once likened philosophical thinking to swimming underwater. You know, those who do well at swimming underwater are those who can hold their breath the longest until their lungs are about to burst and it's hurting as bad as it's going to and they finally make it to the end and then can enjoy themselves. And what I'm trying to say to you in these closing moments of exhortation is I'd like you to, uh, to consider tonight swimming underwater. All right? If it seems like a lot of this was philosophical and, and principial and abstract, it's only because you've got to start somewhere and lay out the lay of the ground so that you can you know, go about doing the more detailed normative work that we're going to start doing next week. So be patient. Now look upon this as swimming underwater, and uh, next week we're going to come up for air. <laughs>